Welcome to New York Institute of Technology's podcast, The Scope. Produced by the College of Osteopathic Medicine, our episodes focus on the medical school experience and how it helps shape future physicians. Learn about exciting new health and wellness initiatives, cutting-edge medical research and technology, and how to effectively navigate medical school. We are excited to have you join us. Good evening, and welcome to the SCOPE podcast. I'm your host for tonight, second-year medical student, Lerone Clark. Today, I am joined by a panel of medical students from the NYTCOM Business and Medicine Organization, along with their organization faculty advisor, NYTCOM Associate Professor of Family Medicine, Dr. Lewis Bass. We also have this evening our esteemed NYTCOM Advisory Board member and Senior Director for Sales Enablement and Support Services at Henry Schein Incorporated, Mr. Irfan Buda. Welcome, Dr. Bass and Irfan. I'm also pleased to welcome our medical student panelists, third-year students Daniela Shamalova and David Yusupov. Thank you all for joining us this evening. So I'd like to open this conversation um, with, to Irfan and Lewis. Why do you guys think it's important for medical students and physicians to be trained in business-related skills? Knowing the business side of the equation is important in the overall patient experience. So, you know, delivering a flawless patient experience takes more than just amazing background and clinical skills. There are uh, leadership skills, there's business acumen skills that are needed in order to deliver what patients are looking for today. What we're seeing out in the marketplace is much more consumer-driven behavior in healthcare. And as this continues to flourish, Having skill sets such as managing others, how billing works in an office, in addition to contracting uh, and leading teams, you know, these things come in very handy when you're a physician. Because know it or not, when you're in the office or on the hospital floor, the staff looks at you as part of the leadership team. And they're going to ask you all kinds of questions. Not all of those questions will be related to clinical practice questions. When I was in medical school, um, I always joked that when I got my diploma, the dean said to me, by the way, medicine is a business. And that was about the extent of my formal training. So along through my career, I really felt that it's important to have the students understand some basic issues of business of medicine. You're learning medicine. You're going to use medicine in, in what format? What kind of an office are you going to set up? What is your financial compensation going to be? In just several years, you're going to be negotiating a, an employment contract with a residency postgraduate program. You need to have some information just to get you started so that you're aware of the issues that will confront you. Financial, legal, contractual, insurance uh, issues, all of the things that we would like to cover uh, to give you an appreciation of what the business of medicine is all about. Thank you both for your insight. Those are definitely very good points and I'm glad that you guys were able to uh, bring those ideas to our attention. So the next question that I would like to ask is, why do you think that there is such a separation between business and medicine today? Daniela? Business? is very closely tied to medicine. We, that was, that's the whole point of our organization. But in the past and even currently, 
business and medicine together is very often seen as a taboo. And doctors who are openly passionate about the financial aspects of medicine are sometimes seen as money grabbers or seeing patients as dollar signs when that's the main purpose. That's what our organization is fighting against because that's just not the truth. The whole purpose of being more financially intelligent and financially aware is actually the best thing for the patient in the end because a physician who understands the limitations, for example, of his own practice can understand this is where I can improve. Why are my patients, for example, complaining about, let's say, being transferred out constantly to other clinics to get ultrasounds when I can choose to invest in an ultrasound machine and bring it here? So this will enhance the patient experience and also enhance the doctor's experience as a physician, which will then overall provide better patient care. Absolutely. Irfan? Danielle, you're so, you're so right. You know, I think once upon a time, uh, the business aspect was seen as taboo for a clinician to really be spending a considerable amount of time with, right, that topic. But what we're seeing in, in reality today as healthcare evolves and patient needs continue to change and grow is that business and medicine are colliding. So we are seeing um, out in the educational space Many institutions of higher learning are offering MBA programs for physicians and clinicians, right? Um, there's discussions similar to the one that we're having right here today going on uh, with students. So one time, no doubt, I think it was a, a, a conversation that was kind of put on the back burner. Uh, but today, I think in order to offer the best possible care, to be able to sustain delivering care to your patients, you have to really consider the business aspect of medicine. Thank you both for sharing. And Dr. Bass, did you want to add? Sure. Uh, just for an example, many years ago, I had the fortune to work with a family practice resident who would take an hour or an hour and 15 minutes seeing a patient. And his work was impeccable. Patients loved him. But I said to him that there's got to be a time factor that you take into account. How many patients can you see in a day to put a key in the door and open that door and turn the lights on and run the telephones and hire nursing assistants and secretaries and get your supplies and set up your rooms? You, you have to consider the cost of medicine for every dollar that you might take in from the patient you might have about a 50 to 55% cost factor. So you have to take that into consideration because basically you're working 50% of the time to pay your expenses for the privilege of practicing medicine. And you have to consider it and you have to do it wisely. You can't spend 75% of your money. Let's say for example, somebody is making $100,000 a year and 50,000 of it is expenses. Then you get your 50,000 and you pay your taxes and you're left with 30 or 35,000 at the end. The percentage of money that you make is much less than the gross that you take in. And you have to consider where that money is spent in order to deliver healthcare in a proper manner so you can stay in business in, and make a good living. Definitely. So David, would you like to add? 
I'd like to expand on what Dr. Bass said. So let's say you ask yourself, well, let's say I don't see it for my future to own a private practice. Let's say I want to work for a physician group or a hospital, right? And I want to, I want, I want to be an employee, right? Well, these problems aren't exclusively those of physicians that own a private practice or serve as an entrepreneurship. You sort of find yourself in a different relationship in a hospital because now you're operating in a profit-seeking enterprise. You operate in a different structure and dynamic with your superiors, right? So it's less about your perspective changes because the people that you answer to have different goals, right? Goals that may be incongruent with yours because you never learned what it means to operate a business or run a business. So these problems, whether our future clinicians like them or notice them or not, they're going to be faced with. And there are a sequelae of consequences that result of not being able to interact with them uh, efficiently and manage them appropriately. I'm glad you brought up those points and thank you for sharing that. I would like to now address our medical students on the panel um, who are instrumental in bringing the NYTCOM Business and Medicine Organization to the campus. Um, so what is the background of this organization and what were your ideas and thoughts coming into it? Firstly, thank you for having us. So I started an MBA course at NICOM and I was driving home one day with my friends, some of fellow medical students, and one of actually our board members, Michael, he said, you know what's really missing in our school is a business club. And right away, I was like, that's an amazing idea. I was like, we need to do this. We need to start this. Especially because during that time, I was taking MBA classes and everything was so relevant to medicine. And we just came together. All the people in the e-board are very interested in various aspects of business. And we gathered a couple of really involved physicians, both from NICOM and alumni of NICOM and other doctors to speak. And we just started the interest group at first. And we had a really great turnout, a lot of interest. That's awesome. Um, David, did you have something you wanted to add? I'd like to add that um, I wasn't part of that uh, initial conversation, but uh, the second I heard that Daniela and Michael had this idea, I shared in their um, enthusiasm in regards to starting this organization. And I was uh, very much looking forward to being a part of it. I did feel that uh, some of the things that we introduced our students to was missing in the delivery of medicine and uh, our education. And there's just too much to go through in your first two years when you're studying the didactics. And the supplementary things, I believe, is up to the students. And I believe that we played and an important role in delivering that supplementary uh, education to the students involved in our organization. Thank you guys both for discussing that. Um, and you mentioned bringing supplementary ideas to our education. Um, what are some of the things that the organization has done in the past year since it started that you feel have been helpful to the student population here? So we had a lot of really great events across every, almost every aspect of business. 
that is related to medicine. We started with something that I think every doctor thinks about, even every medical student thinks about is, do I want to open a practice? So we had a really great alumnus from NICOM come speak to us. He owns a very successful practice in the city, in Brooklyn and Queens. And he kind of spoke to us about how to start, which is where we all, that's what we all question. After that, we had a plastic surgeon come speak to us who had a a blog about financial wellness as a doctor, very similar to the white coat investor. And um, that was also great. All of our meetings, we were very happy to see that we had such great turnouts. We had about approximately 50 students at every event, which is, that's an amazing turnout, honestly. David, do you want to talk about some of the other events we had? I believe that uh, in the short amount of time that we existed first as an interest group and then formal organization, I believe we were very well received by the uh, students in the in, and just sort of given by the turnout. A, a lot of our uh, events, whether it being the um, how to start a practice or uh, how to manage a, a portfolio, what things you should consider as a student when in your years as a resident and the attending and planning for the future. I think some of those events were more well-received than we had initially expected. And the organization grew at a pace that I don't think any of us could have imagined. And we're very grateful for that. That's amazing. Thank you both for sharing that about the organization. I'm happy to see the future of it and all of its further endeavors. The next question I have is for anybody on the panel. Do you see benefits in being able to get this kind of training in business in medical school as opposed to afterwards, you know, in residency or being an attending physician? The one thing that's constant in life is change. The one thing that's constant in medicine is change. Um, The pandemic has certainly opened up doors that the spotlight that we now deal with is on infrastructure. What do we do to deliver healthcare? How do we do so in a manner that gives fair, proper health care to all with appropriate compensation for the work that we're doing? After all, you're training to be physicians. You're going to be involved with patient care. But in reality, it's a job. It's a job that hopefully will bring you great benefit emotionally for helping people get the best health care they can but also to provide a financial benefit to you so that you can raise your families, pay off your debts. Don't forget, many people are saddled with lots of debts and most of us are not wealthy enough to just practice medicine because we like to and have no considerations whatsoever for the financial considerations that we have to face. So I think it's important to just introduce all the different aspects of business so that you have some idea of what you're going into. The specifics of contract uh, negotiations would be started in your postgraduate year number one, and then going from there. Uh, Understanding the changes, understanding what's involved in transparency, understanding what your patients know and how you present yourself. Medicine has become more involved with marketing and publicity and, and why should people see you? And how do you run your practice successfully? Irfan? That, that's exactly right, uh, Lou. Um, you know, one of the things that 
you want to consider as a student is while you're studying to really start to formulate kind of a toolkit of all the different things that you may need when you graduate. And the only way you're going to develop that is by actually learning more about the subject matter. As Lou had mentioned, one of the first things that's going to hit you is somebody's going to ask you to sign a contract. What are you going to do with that contract? Are you just going to sign it and hand it back to the person that's giving it to you? Or are you going to have a resource that you can go to to review that contract so you fully understand it? How are you going to market yourself? Everybody has to build a brand today, right? So what will be your brand when you're coming out of school and you start practicing medicine? These are some considerations. I mean, we clearly are moving to this virtual realm, right, that we've all been living in during the pandemic. And it's really hard to build relationships in this sense because it has changed. And your patient engagement, you know, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do? How are you going to build the patient visit if you're going to start your own practice? And if you're not starting your own practice and you're working for somebody, don't you want to understand how they're actually running those claims and what the rate of rejection is of their claims? These are very important things because it really starts to drive and dive into your livelihood and the next steps you could be taking. So right out of school, you want to make sure that you have some resources that you can lean on because these issues and challenges are going to pop up. And many times they're going to present themselves as opportunities, but you need to kind of sift through uh, these opportunities and find the really great ones for your first couple of um, employment opportunities, I would say. So um, I'll turn it back over to you, Lerone. Thank you. And David, did you have something that you wanted to add? I'd like to emphasize a point that uh, Dr. Bass made in regards to delivering uh, your practice. Uh, just like a car without fuel can't serve you or anyone else, the first two years in medical school, you're learning, you're taught to be didactics, meaning you're sitting in a classroom and you're learning what the sort of the pathology and the, um, the intricacies of medicine, but you don't really learn its delivery. You know, you spend that the, in the latter half of your education and clerkships, right? But Irfan made a good point in his introduction where he pointed out the phenomenon that medicine is moving toward a consumer-based dynamic, meaning that you're not just providing a service in, in meaning healthcare. You're, you're also marketing yourself. Why should somebody go to you? There's this phenomenon of the influencer on social media, right? Why do medical students start their career in, in school and they create a profile, a personality for themselves, for people to follow and to join and in their footsteps? It creates this sort of interpersonal relationship. And this is a part of the marketing uh, that goes into being a successful uh, physician. It's not just about what you know. It's how you deliver what you know in your active Absolutely. I think you made a lot of great points. And Dr. Bass. Yes, um, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that cost and transparency has become extremely important in healthcare delivery. The consumer experience will drive whether the patient comes back to you. Uh, data and analytics become extremely important where your 
pay may be based upon the outcomes that you have. So what's happening is constant change, next generation payment models, consumer data access, uh, patients getting access to their electronic records. What do they do with this information? Uh, how do you place it? What's the best system? What are the costs of the system? It's an extremely intricate business if you're going to do it alone. And I think you have to have some knowledge of what you're going into to be successful. Thank you so much for sharing. And that brings to another question. Um, do you all think that there are connections between physician burnout and stress and anxiety with a lack of business-related skills and management skills and practice? Danielle? I definitely see a relationship. And the greatest example that comes to mind is, and this is a very common trend in private practice physicians, is that like Dr. Bass was saying previously, you have to, in the end of the day, you have to pay your bills. So doctors who are tasked with this in the beginning and who don't have business knowledge, who don't have financial literacy, the quickest and easiest way to go is to increase patient volume. So instead of seeing 30 patients a day, each one for 30 minutes, you end up seeing 100 patients a day, each one for 10 minutes. So you're increasing your profit margins by increasing the patient volume when you could be doing the opposite. You could be increasing how much you're getting paid per patient for that patient's visit. If you just knew how to correctly bill, because you're already doing everything they teach you in medical school to do. But if you don't know how to correctly put that into an EMR system, how to correctly code for it, then you're not getting what you deserve. And then that will lead to physician burnout and things like, oh, I don't get what I deserve as a doctor. I put in so much work and so much effort and I'm not getting what I deserve. And that's, I think, a very common trend. I agree. Dr. Bass? I think it's really important to understand that the models are changing and the old fee-for-service model is not going to hold up in the future. We're still now dealing with situations to determine outcomes management. We will pay you as an insurance company if you get good outcomes. If you don't get good outcomes, you will not get paid. So how do you deliver good outcomes in a safe, effective manner without going overboard? So there's a little bit of a disparity of the old fee-for-service and the new capitation models or the new models that are paying for uh, quality of care issues that have to be brought in. And when you're talking about these kinds of situations of having to deliver a certain minimum number of healthcare deliveries in, in a day, you, you start dealing with that concept of burnout. Uh, physician burnout is very, very common for people who feel that they're overtaxed, that they're trying so hard to just make a living and, and they're working very hard and they don't have time to really spend the time with patients, but you've got to overcome these things with all the methods that you can so that when you're in that room, you deliver the care that you were trained to deliver at your medical school. And I think it's possible to do. I think that's really great insight. David? Dr. Bass brings up an interesting point, and it serves as a testament to his original argument that the only thing that's constant is change. But some things that don't change are the way we interact with the world around us, right? If we address 
Maslow's hierarchy of, our, of needs for an individual. There are, you know, what do you find at the bottom? You find your physiological and your safety needs, right? So you can't sort of address the reason you went into medicine in the first place, right? Because none of us are here if we didn't find sort of the purpose and self-actualization of pursuing this. We, we never um, address that part of why we're here if we can't address the financial aspect, if we don't feel adequately compensated, and if we don't navigate the, uh, the, the market in that sort of way. Thanks so much for your additions. Um, Irfan? You know, one of the things that I believe leads to physician burnout is a lack of balance, right? Not having the understanding of the resources that you have at your fingertips as a physician and as a business person. So the balancing act of figuring out efficiency, cost, and reimbursement plays a vital role in ensuring that you don't burn out. And the only way to get around that is to really kind of open up yourselves to all the things that are out there today, right? There's a lot of technology that can help limit burnout as well as find the new balance. Because in this value-based world that healthcare is going towards, it's not a one-and-done patient visit. You're responsible for that patient's well-being once they come into your office and you start to treat them. So I do believe that um, you have to find balance. There's more to life than uh, practicing medicine and being a good business owner. There's things that help bring you back to the center of who you are. And you have to be self-aware of those things. And you have to really kind of find them and strive to do those things that make you happy, that, that make you a great physician. I'm going to kick it over to Dr. Bass. I think he, he wanted to add a little color. I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I've had some opportunity to spend a good part of my career in private practice and learning the business of medicine by, I'll call it hard knocks. There's a lot of things that you have to know in order to run your business successfully, and you get a lot of gratification, and you develop your patient base, and, and that stays with you. I moved and transitioned to be an employee for a corporation, at which time I really didn't have to take care of all the ins and outs of the business of medicine. I knew what my job was. I knew what my reimbursement was. I knew what my perks were. And when I closed that door in the exam room, nothing mattered except my doctor-patient relationship. So that was something that prevented burnout. If you can maintain that doctor-patient relationship and know why you went into this field, you will limit the burnout. Thank you all for your comments and your insight. It was really awesome. And I think you mentioned a few things that will bring us into another question. We talked a little bit about the technologies that have been uh, introduced, as well as the different methodologies that we've seen in healthcare since the COVID-19 pandemic and new developments. What kind of new problems do we see arising that are important to address um, this relationship between business and medicine as we go into practice? Irfan? So pre-COVID-19, telehealth was a phenomenon which was really not widely accepted. Cutting edge companies used it. People that had remote patients used telehealth. But what COVID-19 did was it really propelled the use of telehealth. 
Um, I remember early COVID, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, was practicing medicine on her laptop, treating patients. The new reality is, how do you create a hybrid care model? What levels of medicine can be delivered through telehealth up front? And then how do you balance that with an in-person visit? So I think when we start to talk about technology, this has become something that um, as physicians, you have to really figure out when is it okay to treat a patient that's remote and when do they have to come into the office so you can see them? That's a challenge. I also think there's um, some reimbursement considerations around delivering hybrid care that need to be understood. I don't quite understand them fully. I do believe that needs to be um, explored a little better. And then lastly, I would say that figuring out a care plan that balances both remote and in-person post-treatment, I think, becomes vital also. So those are some considerations that I wanted to share with the team. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Bass? Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that telemedicine is here to stay. I think that part of the future of telemedicine is due to what the insurance carriers might do in terms of payment. In other words, if there's no reimbursement for it, I don't know how many patients would really want to use telemedicine if they had to pay out of pocket. But I found that in certain specialties, certainly in general medicine, family medicine, internal medicine, seeing a patient initially, you can certainly take a history. There are certain things that you can do. And most certainly, after you see a patient in the office, you can have a telemedicine visit with them and follow up with them. Then we talk about what technology does this patient have? Does the patient have their own blood pressure cuff? Do they have their own pulse oximeter? Uh, do they all own thermometers? Can they give you data that would be important in order for you to assess whether they're doing well or not doing well? And I think it has a definite factor. The fact that you're not laying your hands on is something that carries with it uh, some issues. But I think that the benefits of the hybrid model, as Irfan suggested, far outweigh not doing telemedicine. And I think it's here to stay. Thanks so much. Thank you. David, did you want to add? I wanted to piggyback off what uh, Dr. Bass and Irfan mentioned about funding for and reimbursements, right? This sort of falls under the broader category of the politics that are involved in healthcare, right? So if you ask a medical student, they might not know that their residency salary is paid for by Medicare, right? And they might not know that Medicare pays $150,000 per resident, or just about per hospital. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, where do, how do I fit into this organization, right? Like, what's my role and how do I contribute? There was an interesting case in Panaman University Hospital in which the hospital was closing and with it were closing 550 residency uh, spots, positions. And private equity stepped in and bid up to $55 million to purchase the hospital for the purpose of having the residents, having the ability to solicit funding for Medicare and at the same time train the residents. So there's this question of definitely a profit incentive in administering and delivering medicine in healthcare. And well, how much of that 
high are you taking home? Right? How much of that do you see? And what is your worth in an organization? And how do you negotiate that? And that goes into contract negotiations and the political climate. And we, I think, as prospective physicians, as medical students, we have to be conscious of the fact that this dynamic exists and we're either going to be victims of it or we could use that structure and shape the future to our advantage. Thank you, David. I think you posed some really interesting topics and I appreciate your sharing. And Dr. Bass, did you want to add one more thing? Yes, I just want to say that early on, this is my 44th year of uh, being in practice. I graduated in 1974. Insurance companies basically ruled what happened and we were sheep that followed. It took uh, a lot of politics and internal politics for groups of physicians, specialty groups, organizations, the AOA, the AMA, uh, all of the specialty colleges to decide that, that we do have a say in what happens and we can negotiate what our reimbursements are. So that's taken on a major change in what's happened. Uh, hospitals, for example, uh, used to be paid on a whatever they did fee-for-service basis, and then they were paid on a outcome basis. Or how many days were you in the hospital? We're going to pay you so much money per day. There are so many things that have changed. And the same thing has changed in the politics, David. The politics of medicine has kind of gone back to the leaders of our field who want to be involved and shape the future. And such a thing, the organization for the business of medicine or learning the business of medicine is so important to gain an understanding as to where you want to fit in and how you want to shape the future. Thank you, Dr. Bass. So I want to segue into another question. So Dr. Bass, we've heard that NYT.com has developed a new course titled Introduction to the Business of Medicine. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. With the help of Irfan and Dan Catizano and Paul Cohen and myself, we have developed a course called the Introduction to the Business of Medicine, which we are going to initiate this coming January as a panel discussion of all of the elements that we felt were important to give an opportunity for medical students to understand the complexities and issues they will face involving the billing, the electronic records, the coding, contracts, insurance issues, malpractice, disability, liability, regulations, accreditations, burnout, the future of medicine, all kinds of things to just give a taste for what's involved. And uh, the initial course, uh, because we're not sure exactly what the reception will be, was going to be or will be offered to the fourth year students um, and we're going to give it in a, a four-week presentation at two-hour sessions each week uh, beginning in January. How we will move it from there, whether we'll include third years or second years, really depends on the time and how it's received. But we're very excited to be able to offer this to the fourth-year students who are interested come this January. Thank you, Dr. Bass. I think we're all very excited to see that come to fruition. And the last question I have is for the students on the panel. So for anyone who is interested in learning more about the business and medicine organization here at NYIT.com, um, what advice would you have for them and what kind of things um, do you hope to see in the near future? I would say that if you're interested, you should 
Google us. Uh, we have an Instagram account. It's very active. Uh, we post weekly articles related to business and medicine. We had a post, for example, um, in the beginning about how what percentage of medical graduates choose to open their own private practices versus working under someone else. We also talk about different scholarships available to students who are interested in business and medicine, such as the White Coat Investor Scholarship. For anybody who's interested in starting their own club, if you're passionate about it, do it. Keep pushing it. Try your hardest. And if we did it, you could do it. Thank you so much. So I would like to thank our panel for joining us today to discuss the very important need for incorporating business-related training into the practice of medicine. It's clear from our discussion today that providing business training can ultimately lead to advancing high-quality and accessible healthcare for patients and also promote the overall well-being of both medical students and physicians. Thank you again for joining us in this enlightening conversation.